And what gets me out of bed when I'm writing a, a story, partly, and the sense of obligation I have to material is partly that, oh my God, this character is so good. And it's not my imagination creating this character. I've been watching this character and I am just in awe. And I can't wait to put that person on the page. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. It's hard to know where to begin with this week's guest, Michael Lewis, because I think that you could certainly be forgiven for seeing him as a runaway success in his professional career. Um, from his books, beginning in 1989 with Liar's Poker, Moneyball, The Blind Side, The Undoing Project, The Big Short, the adaptations into hugely beloved films, the journalism career. Um, it, as I say, it, I can understand where you'd be coming from to see him as a tremendous success. But what you would be overlooking in viewing him that way is that I think the most important job that Michael Lewis has ever been offered at the age of 61 was when I asked him at the beginning of this interview to be my eyes behind my head and monitor the cat situation between Raul and Henry, given that Henry, as some of you might know, adopted after being feral in the woods for two years, has feline HIV. And Michael agreed to take on this task. You know, no, no light duty there. And what you're going to hear about halfway through this interview is Raul, like a runaway locomotive, plowing through one of my bookshelves to try to get at Henry. What you're not going to hear is Michael Lewis alerting me that this is going on behind my back. So that, you know, this dereliction of duty, as far as I'm concerned, should be the defining first sentence in his obituary, even though it's probably not. But anyway, Michael Lewis, one of my journalistic heroes, uh, I was nervous going into this one. I crammed about eight hours before we started talking, even though I've loved his work for years, and I actually began my journalistic career following up on one of my favorite of his stories called Commie Ball, 2008 Vanity Fair, the first story I think he wrote for them before becoming contributing editor, and I started interviewing people that he had used, to use Lawrence Wright's term again, as donkeys into this story about um, an agent smuggling Cuban athletes into the United States. And I was obviously doing a parallel in the Domino Diaries with boxers. So I was following a master and, and trying to learn how he was doing what he was doing. And so this was a real treat. I've been trying forever to get him on, to talk to him. It's the first time I've ever spoken with him directly. And uh, he just couldn't have been nicer. So I hope you enjoy this half as much as I did. And uh, yeah, Michael Lewis, this week's guest on Tourist Information. I, I think you're in for a treat. So where are you? You and you, what? Where are you in the world? Uh, I'm New York City, um, near near Central Park, Midtown. You look you look like you have the same sort of the same hygienic standards as I do. <laughs> yes. Just eyeball on your backdrop there. Yeah, it, it's not curated um, to go viral <laughs> with these podcasts. No, I just I just have books and a messy desk. Um, what is your desk like? I was curious about that. So you're not a supremely orderly person. Well, you know, um, no, uh, but this is a bad, I mean, I'm not at my desk. I'm at my son's makeshift desk. Um, and I've been writing, I've been writing, let's see if you can see it, at a kitchen table for the last two weeks. But, but when I go home, which is three nights a week, my desk is, um, it's pretty orderly. It, the desk area is pretty orderly. And the, the projects are pretty well ordered. And then I have, I've got, I've got a wall of shelves on either side of the desk. And whatever's alive is on the right, on the right shelves. And whatever is kind of like dormant, dead, maybe is on the left shelves. So, and, um, and it's all done with, it's all done, I, I find a need to have, it organized physically in the world. Like I can't even now really satisfactorily do plan my life on, on a Google schedule. The, the, the fact that I'm not online with it drives my wife insane, uh, but I have a big desk blotter. I just kind of need to see it. Um, 
but but broadly, I, but I, I'm not a. I've had friends who are just totally mentally disorganized, and their piles all over their offices. And I'm not like that. I go crazy if I if if I get too disorganized. I'm sort of, I'm sort of in between in my level of organization, and I just like to keep. I like to kind of know broadly what the projects are that I'm actually supposed to be thinking about and have them in sight. Um, and at any given time, there are three or four of them. I was just going to ask, are you toggling between several of them or do you really need to focus on one? Um, when I'm actually completing it, I have to focus on one, but always have several kind of up in the air. In the So right now, I'm not, I don't have a, I don't have a deadline, a horrible deadline to meet. The next thing is, the next thing is the, third season of the podcast which is comes out in april so i can i can i have the luxury of fiddling with other stuff while i'm fiddling with podcast episodes so i have a film script that i agreed i'd write for apple um i have um beginnings of two book ideas and and which neither of which might pan out but i'm going to do at least i'm going to do um some reporting and even a magazine piece on one of them just to see how i feel about them and um and then and then the seven episodes of the podcast and the, the and I, I will, I don't know why, if I find that, especially after books, um, it, it's really good to, to be kind of loosey goosey about what I'm doing and keep lots of ideas open. Let, leave it sort of, leave, have periods of time where I am um, uncommitted enough that stuff can just walk in uh, yeah. because otherwise stuff won't walk in. Otherwise you just kind of, you're too busy and you shut things down and you're, you're kind of blocking the world from walking in. Um, so I'm still, I'm, I've got another maybe three or four weeks before I have to shut things down for the podcast. Uh, but right now I'm just dicking around with, the with, with lots of stuff. By the way, there's a cat just wandered behind you. Uh, there, see, is that the, is that the, the dangerous one or the, Henry's on the chair. Raul is encroaching. So yeah, we'll we'll keep an eye on it. Okay. Give him the Clint Eastwood evil glare if you can. Which one is the feral cat? That's Henry on the chair. I mean, you okay. can kind of see. The yeah, yeah. So the one that's walking around is Raul. Yeah. Okay. So he's communist. The other one's converted to Islam. So there's a lot of friction between the two of them. No. Is is Raul named for Raul Castro? Yeah, he had a brother named Fidel. Fidel's no longer with us. Um, but they were just the first names that came to mind. Was <laughs> Fidel domineering? He was, he was. They fit the roles. He was very much the alpha with the two of them. <laughs> I had, um, my grandparents had two Siamese cats and they named one of them Joe and one of them Lai. So that, so that when they're it was in New Orleans in the old days when their maid would go out on the front porch. She was supposed to scream, "Joe and Lie, Joe and Lie," and but 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 she'd invariably walk out on the front porch and scream, "Lie and Joe, Lie and Joe, Lie and Joe." Uh, um, it's um, well, my actually oddly, the film thing I'm doing for Apple is partly set in Cuba in the Castro regime. Really? So I, I've been re I just read a, a wonderful history of of of. Do you have an interest in Cuba? Uh, I've done two books about it, so I, yeah. There, well, there you go. So there's a there's an NYU history professor named, uh, I don't know how you pronounce your name, Ada Ferrer. <laughs> I warned you. I warned you. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, who, and she's just, in the last six months, has published what I think is already being taken as the best history written of Cuba. And she's really good on the subject of Fidel. And best best I've read actually it, in a in a detached way. You can get more out of some of the really, you know, nose to Fidel sources like his chauffeur and all that. But um, but most of the stuff that's written is written from such a with, with such um, agitation one way or the other, yeah. and it's either pro or con. That we're, you can see we're getting to a point where detach some detachment is possible, and she she's kind of written with detachment. So you kind of see like what works about him and what doesn't. Um, but anyway, anyway, I can't wait to read. I mean, yeah, because I read everything I could get my hands on working on the two books, including it's where I found you with the Vanity Fair article, Commie Ball. So there you go. That's the basis of the of the script that I sold Apple. Okay, I, it's a fictionalized. It's a fictionalized show that that grew out of that piece of piece of writing. 
uh, which I've been stewing on, I mean, whatever, for 12 years. Uh, I mean, I, it just seems such a rich vein of material. Um, and and I, it was one of the things, sometimes when I finish something, I think really this is more than what I did. And, and it's usually it mushrooms into a book. Uh, but in this case, I couldn't see the book, but I could really see a TV series uh, with these Cuban baseball players coming across being the engine of the of the narrative um, and that agent sitting in the middle of the story. Gus Dominguez. Yeah. 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 What, you know, I, I have it. I mean, I was going to get to that. I mean, but just a quick question before I focus on that a little later on. Um, how does a book like Duke of Havana, where you have the El Duque story, which is one of the most mind-bogglingly incredible stories, even apart from sports, that he goes to the Yankees and does all of that. That book did nothing. And it has a Pulitzer Prize winner writing it, well, co-writing it. Why is Cuba so hard to really find an audience as a subject? That's a really good question. I don't let me think of it. Is it true? I mean, novels have done well. Um, um, but why is it that... You know, in the case of in the case of that book, it's funny how sort of um, un, uninterested the American baseball audience is in where these players have come from once they've established themselves as big league stars. They become honorary Americans, and no one really wants to know very much. They know the story's incredible, blah blah blah, but they want to think of them as a Yankee. Uh, yeah, and. Um, and the other stuff seems sort of irrelevant to the, to the fan. So the baseball fan, so I think it's part of the reason like that kind of baseball book might not have done so well. Um, very hard to know why people want to read what they want to read. Uh, I find Cuba endlessly fascinating. Like, like if you made me, if you made me pick, I mean, I kind of, you know, some part of Latin America to write about. That's the place, um, but but Americans are. I mean, I've had I've had ex I've had experiences where I thought what I wrote was incredibly interesting, and the subject would interest millions of people, and it just never finds them, um, or if it, fi or it finds them through a movie rather than the book. Um, I, so I don't I don't know why I don't know why there isn't a bigger market, but yeah, I agree. It is an incredible story, and it's one of you know a hundred stories that are kind of like that that are sometimes ending with the player not making it but the player having been kind of major league star caliber uh, you kind of you kind of wonder why there isn't more interest and curiosity in it no i mean i let's let's just table that for a minute we can come back because yeah. i certainly wanted to follow up with obama visiting at the stadium that you wrote about latino americano and, and get to that because i love you know 50,000 seat stadium, what's missing, a parking lot was one of my favorite little anecdotes from your piece. Um, but I just want to start, I was watching a number of your interviews with Malcolm Gladwell, and I can't tell, are you enjoying it or is it irking you? Because there's a bit of an odd couple aspect to it where you immediately <laughs> cross your arms and I go, is Michael liking this? I know he likes him, but. I, I like him a lot. He, he insists on, on making more sense of my books than I do. Huh. And, uh, and and seeing patterns that I don't completely agree with, um, but am I enjoying it? You, you know, when you're on stage with Malcolm, you are you're playing high lie. Uh, it, it's it, you never know where it's going to go and how and it can move very quickly. Um, so that's probably what you're detecting in me is a kind of red alertness, yeah. um, and it's a red alertness that's happening. Usually, the context is some long and exhausting book tour where I, I know I'm already kind of at half speed because I haven't slept in four nights and and now I gotta cope with Malcolm having fun at my expense in front of a thousand people. <laughs> yeah. So that that's probably what you're saying. Um it's uh he is one of those people though when I talk to him who who's most capable of just surprising me about what he's gonna do and say. So that again, you have to be kind of on red alert for that. Um, but he sees, it's funny, he sees, he wants to um, understand my books in a way that is quite different from the way I understand them. So I do feel like I need to put up a fight there. 
or else or, or just silently acquiesce to the Malcolm Gladwell view of me. Um, and and he sees me as a great moralist. And 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 I don't think of myself that way at all. I think of myself as someone who has an eye for an interest in really good stories and uh, the moral aspect of them uh, will come into the foreground and disappear in the background, but it's not what's driving me in the beginning. Uh, it, it's, it's something entirely different than that. It's, it's character and situation. Um, but he wants to see me as a, as a generator of endless sort of biblical parables. Uh, and it's funny that he sees it that way. Um, and, and it's also interesting, there is, there's enough of a difference. We get grouped together sometimes because we're friends and because we do podcasts for the same company and because they're not, you know, both, both nonfiction writers, both kind of came out of the same world a little bit. But what we do is really different. I mean, Malcolm is an intellectual. Malcolm is basically always playing with ideas. And I am a storyteller. And ideas are there or they're not. But I mean, they're there, but they're not there in the same way that they're in Malcolm's in, in Malcolm's work. And I write long narratives, and he really doesn't. He writes he writes essays that are sometimes disguised with narrative, but they're basically essays. Um, um, they're basically scaffolding for him to play on his mind to play on. Whereas my mind can take a break when I, when I, often when I'm writing. I mean, I'm telling the story through other people. Um, it's, it's just a different thing. Well, it's funny to see you turn the tables with them in one instance. You didn't do much of it. I mean, you did seem to enjoy much of it. Um, but when you pointed out, uh, I think we're talking about the Undoing Project specifically, where you said this seemed like a project for you rather than me initially. Um, and he said he didn't know how to bring the relationship alive. And you turn the tables by saying, what is your issue? Let's reflect on your inability to build relationships. <laughs> that was very nicely done. And he got very uncomfortable. There's a, there's a really good example. That if you handed Malcolm that material, where Malcolm would go with it is by digging into arguing with the ideas of Kahneman and Tversky. And I present the ideas of Kahneman and Tversky. What is at the forefront of that book is this love story, this relationship between the two that um, he would have, I think, made less of. Could be wrong. I could be wrong. And the book is the book has this awkwardness to it because it is a book about intellectuals. Um, and I had this problem of how to get across the not just their ideas and their relationship, but their importance of their ideas in the world. And I, I don't think I ever completely solved that problem. And I think he might've solved that problem better than I solved that problem. Hmm. But that's, you know, maybe another reason I said it's for Malcolm is, is I do get the willies a little bit with characters when I think their minds are so vast, I can't get mine around it, uh, that, that, that they are smarter than me. I mean, it's true of a lot of my character, but it, I mean, that they are, there are things going on in their heads that maybe I will not even be able to understand for itself. And that, I'm worried a little bit about that. Um, and that's, that book is the, it's unusual in my, in my oeuvre because um, mostly I am from, from moment of conception to moment of delivery um, is at most 18 months, sometimes once, maybe two years but often a year, like Moneyball took a year, Premonition took a year, Big Short took a year. Um, that took eight and it took eight. It went from talking about how my desk is arranged. It went back and forth from the right-hand column where, where of stuff I'm working on to the left-hand uh, column of stuff that's gone cold. And it even went into my basement because I thought I was done with it a couple of times. I just thought, I don't know how to do this. Um, and, but it kept nagging me because I liked it so much. I kept dragging it back out. Uh, and I never really had that happen before that way. Um, before or since. I, that kind of hesitation about it, that hesitation coupled with I can't let go. Um, it, it, was, it was neurotic in a way I'm not. And I think I was wondering whether I wasn't taking on a bit the character of my characters, uh, the, 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 especially Danny, the way he went back and forth on everything and was always doubting everything, that he managed to infect me with some of his self-doubt for a brief period of time. 
uh, and, th and then it made it harder for me to write about him. Uh, I, I wondered that. Um, but yes, Malcolm I, Malcolm, I think in, Malcolm would have handled some of that with much greater assurance and he would have, I think, ignored some of it too uh, that I focused on. It's interesting because it reminds me a bit of something David Lynch said that if you have 10 scripts, or sorry, one script and 10 directors, you get 10 completely different movies. You know, it's a funny idea I've had too about writing, about journalism. I've often thought, wouldn't it be fun to parachute a bunch of writers into the same story? Don't, don't let them communicate with each other and have them each come out with their own version of the story as a kind of, as a, kind of a book where you, it would be kind of a, um, an, instru a, an instruction book for writers, so like a, journal, a, a journalism textbook. Here, read these 10 pieces by 10 different people. It's about exact, supposedly about exactly the same thing. Look how differently they turned out, how many different ways there was to do that. The, the only problem with it, you, you drive batshit the people you're writing about because they'd have 10 journalists wandering through their living rooms, but asking different questions. But you would get, it would be, it would be a fun exercise um, to see just, so I had a version that, but when the when COVID happened, there was a version of this that I kind of kickstarted with my friend David Shipley, who runs Bloomberg's editorial unit. And the idea was, it um, it was it was to drop six different writers into six different small places in America that had lost their newspapers and lost their local media and have them write the story of the, whatever the story of the place that wasn't getting told because they didn't have any media and they could do whatever they wanted. Now it wouldn't be, that wouldn't be in that case, that wouldn't be exactly the same story. So you really, but you would really see six different approaches I bet to what happens when you drop someone down in a place and they got to find a story. Uh, they'll, they'll go about it completely differently. And there, there, there are as many ways to do it as there are people doing it, um, not just one way. And, and that, I thought, I thought we were gonna, what we we're gonna do is dramatize. We may still do this. Um, I thought we were gonna dramatize how many stories weren't getting told. Um, but I thought we were also gonna dramatize, uh, look how many different ways there are to do this. Um, and they're not, none of them is the right way. They, they're all just six different ways. But I had the, we had half the writers lined up, we were ready to go and then COVID hit. Um, so we, did, we, we, we shelved it um, anyway. Well, speaking a bit to that point, one of the things I was going to ask you is a kind of fun exercise you, you said in an interview you did with, with Obama when you spent months with him, is you tried to get him in a place in his head he hadn't been before and said, you know, make me president with, with all that you've learned. And I, I wonder if we could do the same thing with you in terms of make it, let's wipe you out of existence. How do we oh. put somebody into you in terms of your attributes? If we dropped you into a place what are, what are your special skills, superpowers, what have you, to do what you do the way you do it? Because clearly, you're one of the world's favorite storytellers. So that's not what I asked Obama, right? I didn't ask him to tell me how to be him. I told him how to, I asked him to tell me how to be president. Okay, uh, true. Right? right? And, and, um, and it was, so I wasn't asking him to talk about himself. I was asking him to talk about his job. And that's easier to get someone to talk about. Okay. Uh, something other than them. So this is part of an answer for you. Okay. Um, um, and that challenge, that re uh, reporting challenge, writing challenges when you're writing about people who are alive and around and you're dealing with them. They're social challenges, right? And the social challenge with the president of the United States is one, he has no time, and two, he's bored to death of your questions and everything and anything you, you might say is going to be not new, boring, heard it. No, He's already got his answer prepared, all the rest. So you got to find some way to biff him out of his routine with journalists. And that, for me, that was that. It was like, how am I going to get him out of the, the usual headspace he is when he's with someone who's like me? Um, and, and I thought, and also, um, if you make it fun and it's a game, it, it just changes the tenor of the interaction. And it yielded gold, I thought. That was a great way to kind of, it ended up being a great way to go about getting to know him. So if you ask me, so you want to try again? You want to ask me how to go about? Uh, let's const let's construct one of the world's favorite storytellers. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nonfiction storytelling. Sure. Um, uh, so I got 
in 30 minutes, you're going to be, I'm going to be gone and you're going to have to go do it. Um, in no particular order, one, pay no attention at all, or if anything, reverse attention to what the world thinks is important. Now, it may be true that what the world thinks is important is actually important, and that's your subject. But it's so much more interesting if you're finding people and situations that no, it occurred to no one else to write about. And it's a bad sign, not a good sign, if this is being covered already in newspapers and on the television, or, or if just generally, if the interest in the thing is already acknowledged. Your goal is to interest people in something they didn't know they were interested in. Um, and uh, it's the only thing I disliked about both the Big Short and the Premonition was that the subject was too, too obvious. I mean, the whole world's talking about the financial crisis and the whole world's talking about the pandemic. That, that the reason I got so interested is I found a really weird way to do both of them. And so that kept me interested. I knew that nobody was gonna find my subjects and write about them, uh, that nobody was gonna care about them uh, unless I made them care. So that's one. Your job is not to, to reinforce what everybody already thinks is, is interesting. Yours is to find some new, it, it, impress the world upon the world, the interest of something they didn't know they were interested in. Austrinity um, is the word we're looking for, right? What's that? Austrinity. What is that? Looking at an old thing in a new way. I've never heard that word. How do you spell it? Oh, oh you can't. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> give, me a, give me a letter so I can go look it up. A-U? O-O-S-T-R-E-N. Oh. Okay. It, I believe it was. God, I've never heard. That's a great word. It's the most sought after element of Russian literature, I think, in the 19th century is to find an old thing and look at it in a new way. Well, there you go. But that's, well, that's one way to generate interest or to find a new thing that no one's looking at. Right, right. Um, so that's, I would almost, that's, so that's, that's I'm gonna give you a list. That's, that's part of the list. Two, your job is a social job. You are not gonna be allowed to learn the things you need to know if the people who are gonna teach you find you repellent, boring, uh, tedious, whatever, that they actually have to want to tell you their story. Um, and you're not gonna get it by force. You're gonna have to get it by guile. Um, so you've got to be, you've got to develop a so, an emotional social intelligence just to get the story in the first place. You've got to be the kind of, you've got to get to be the kind of person people just want to be with because you're going to need to be with them in order to get what you need. Um, so be aware of the interest level of your company. And, it, and if you can be useful to the people who you need help from, by all means, be useful so they have a real reason why they want to. They want want you around. So find a way to join in and help uh, in some odd way. It's it's a kind of participation. The, this process is not. A, there's no objective distance here. There's participation. Doesn't mean it's not fair or it's not true. It's but it's not. You aren't detached and at a distance. There's no way that's going to work. You are in their kitchen, helping them cook their meal. Um, uh, Three, um, a good way to test the interest level of your material is not to sit down and write about it, but to go out for a beer with a friend and try to talk about it. Oh. And, and, see, and, that, and just see if you're excited when you're talking about it. And you'll also, you'll, you'll gauge the level of interest that way better than by putting it down on paper. Just, just see if you want to tell a story. See if you can tell what you're learning about as a story casually and see if the people are gripped by it and interested in it. Um, and if they turn, you say, man, you got to write this, you're in good shape. Uh, um, or when you sit down to write it, don't be so different from the way you are when you sit down over beers to tell it. Uh, don't, don't, um, don't think literary, don't, don't think, oh, there's this form I need to conform to. Think, I'm just going to try to have that keeping someone riveted over a beer effect going on the page. See, um, because your reader is always looking to put the thing down. Uh, and it doesn't mean it has to be gimmicky. It, that's not exactly what I'm saying, but what it has to do is it, it, it can't be self-indulgent. Um, it's gotta be, it's, you gotta keep an eye on the audience while you're writing. Um, and, uh, 
here's the last one. This might, this might be for me the most important. Um, subject yourself to a test of how much you care about the thing you're writing about. If you are doing it just because you got to write a piece or you're doing it uh, because you want to you want to make money or whatever it is, it's going to be a lesser work than if you're doing it because you're you have genuinely genuine deep feeling for it. And my test that I subject myself to with books anyway, not so much with shorter things, but with books is. Am I doing the world a disservice by not telling this story? Like, do I have an obligation? Because this story is so good and I've got myself in so deep that no one else is gonna be able to tell it. Uh, I've got the opportunity, I, I've, I've been given the gift of this story. Do I have an obligation to tell it because it's that good? Do I feel that way about it? So I have an obligation to the kind of material. That's what in the end got me writing The Undoing Project. I could not stop thinking about it because I thought, Christ, no one's going to be able to do this because no, I have this really privileged access to both the Diversky and the Kahneman side of things here. And, um, and I, highly unlikely anyone else is going to get that, especially while Danny's still alive. Um, so I was in this very odd relationship to the material. Um, and I felt in the end, I had an obligation to try to do it, even though I felt unqualified to do it and or not only partially qualified to do it. And so having that kind of feeling that's outside um, the immediate demands of the occupation, where you can at least persuade yourself that you have an obligation, is very powerful. It gets you, it gets you into the seat. It, it, it creates a different um, relationship to your material, where you were doing it for some higher purpose. Um, even if you're just de deluding yourself, uh, it's that, that's a very useful delusion. Um, so off the top of my head, those, that's what I would say to you. Those are great. Those are, um, I guess, a slight pivot from that. I've always been curious when I listen to interviews with you, and I understand you've focused on a lot of extraordinarily bright people, including probably the smartest person alive on earth in <laughs> the doing project. But you regularly refer to yourself as a B student. And I, I love that kind of paradigm when you talk about I'm a B student writing about A students and I, I suffer from that problem. But you also in this uh, speech you gave at your alma mater at Princeton um, spoke to luck being such a vital ingredient to your success. Um, I'm, it, it kind of makes me think a bit about like Hunter S. Thompson talking about Muhammad Ali saying, if you're diffusing bombs, you're not relying on luck. You've gotta be skilled. Ali wasn't lucky. He was really fucking fast. <laughs> so I wonder, is that imposter syndrome that you have or what, what's going on? Well, let's just lay the facts out here for a minute. So th there's, there's a factual basis to this case. Um, I bet my grade point average when I was a sophomore in high school was just north of a two. That I had a D on my transcript and a bunch of Cs my English teacher sent me to the principal a number of times for insolence, insubordination, and she thought I she she, she thought it was pointless to teach me. Um, and it wasn't just a behavioral issue. I did, I wasn't interested in the material, and I was not good at school. Now, I kicked myself into gear after that, um, and the same English teacher was kind of shocked I was the same person two years later when I came and took her class all over again, but. I had a history of mediocre academic performance and, um, and of wavering, a wavering attention span in the classroom. Um, so that's one thing. Um, uh, second, you know, there was, most writers have their narrative up and running by the time they get out of college. They, they're interested in being a writer. They've written for school newspapers. They have stuff, they, you know, stuff has been in print. They have professors who say you're teachers, creative writing teachers who say, wow, you're really gifted and so on and so forth. No one said that about me. I mean, no one, not just that it was, that the praise was hard to find. No one said like you were born to write. Mm -hmm. And I really did have that experience my senior year with my thesis advisor. He said, you actually can think. Your thesis is really good and interesting. And, and I, what I was looking for was praise for the writing. And I asked for it and he asked what he thought about the writing and he really did say, put it this way, don't try to make a living at it. 
Wow. So, so really, 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 when I got out of college, there was no one, no one, no one saying like, you should be, be a writer. Um, I think, um, I thought I had some aptitude and my sense of my aptitude came from responses to letters I wrote, um, that people passed them around. They thought they were kind of funny. Um, and I felt a certain way when I was putting words on, on paper, I thought, I thought when I was when I actually cared about what I was writing, it actually I thought this is quite good. I can do this, but it was entirely self-generated. Um, my career, or let's just say I have whatever level of ability. My career wound up turning pretty significantly on the fact I landed at Solomon Brothers when I landed at Solomon Brothers and had that material dropped in my lap. I mean, I, it, I, the equivalent now would be, I don't know, if you were dropped in the middle of the Trump administration two years ago, or somebody, the, all, the whole world was paying attention to that thing, and nobody really knew it was a black box. Nobody knew what was going on inside of it, and I was right in the middle of a black box. Abraham's a pruder situation. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was exactly. But now it's true that it's probably true that uh, other people could have been dropped in the middle and made not much of it, but there are a lot of writers who, if they were handed that material, could have launched a career. Uh, and I just got handed that material. So I got very lucky with the material I came out of the blocks with. Um, and, but I, when I'm thinking about luck, I'm thinking even more broadly, like I, I, you know, I was basically a rich kid. I'm a very upper middle class kid and with very indulgent parents. And I did not have to go do anything when I got out of college. I could kick around for a few years and in those few years, without having to make a living, I was occupied. I was in graduate school. I was in a job that didn't pay very well, but I had the leisure to to start to write um, that I that most people would not have had. And and the begin the first stage of my career is before I get to Solomon Brothers, writing and writing and writing and submitting and submitting and submitting magazine pieces and having them be rejected, rejected, rejected. And, and then until finally a couple get started to get accepted. But that I learned a lot doing that. And I would not have been afforded that experience if I had come from a different background. Um, it would have been much, much harder uh, to have the experience. But I mean, there, there are a million ways in which I think luck plays a role in my career, but those, those are all really big ones. And it really was not obvious that like I was meant to do this. Um, and I feel I have this residue of this even now that when I'm done with a book and I take, as I kind of have the last six months, take some time and like think about what I might want to do next. There is some little part of me that is always asking, should I be doing this, still be doing this? And like, is this, is this, do I have another one in me? Uh, do I actually, is, am I a writer? Um, and I'm all, I, I hold it loosely the identity because it because it, it was bestowed on me very late and it felt provisionally and um and I don't I don't just think oh yeah that's what I was meant to be T to this day I don't think something that that's what I'm meant to be it's just I do I happen to do it and for whatever reason keep doing it and it's been more or less working um is how I think about it that's really interesting because it seems like a profession far more than most where people use the identity of being a writer as a kind of foxhole against all kinds of other things in their existence. It's funny you say that. They do it and they, do, and they will do that from a very young age, right? When they enter oh, yeah. creative writing programs and it's, it's, it, it gives them, that's a very good way to put it. Um, it gives them, a, it creates a defense mechanism that's really not useful. Um, <laughs> it, I, that the insecurity of not knowing quite what you are, being a wander, being a stranger in a strange land, being a wandering the world, just trying to find out what's in, figure out what's interesting, is a much more useful pose than I am a writer, capital W, uh, who is going to bestow my gift upon this material. Um, it inverts the order of importance, the, the actual order of importance. The material is much more important than the writer, um, and. The writer's relationship to the material is queered if the writer is thinking principally he's the one who's responsible for it being interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or so 
anyway, uh, I, I do. I, I am. I mean, I'll tell you a story that it would. You could. There would be a thousand versions of this story would be available if I happened to encounter a thousand different people from my childhood. But the the main um, character of the Blind Side, main character, not Michael Lore, but the dad, Sean Tuey, who is the dad in the family of the Blind Side. Tim McGraw plays him in the movie. I. This is how I found that story. I was down in Memphis um, giving a talk about Moneyball and I hadn't seen him since high school. We grew up together and we'd been in the same class of 60 kids from kindergarten through 12th grade, 13 years of school together, 13 years he'd watched me closely in the classroom. And, uh, and I, I thought it'd be fun to get back in touch with him because I was thinking about writing something about our high school baseball coach we both played. Um, he comes and gets me at the airport and I, I shit you not one of the, maybe the, after he says hello and I'm in his car, the first thing he asked me is who writes your books? He says, he says, I'm, he says, who writes your books? And I said, you know, Sean has never, Sean, well, Sean is the first to tell you he, he, he hasn't read a book since college. Uh, but he says, so who writes your books? And I said, Sean, I write my books. He goes, he goes, I know that you go out there and promote them. You're really good on TV. He thought of me as like this huckster. Yeah. He, says, uh, he says, but who writes, the, like who puts the words down? He thought that my job was just to market these suckers. And, uh, and I said, Sean, Sean, I put the words down. And he said, he looked at me, he goes, with total incredulity, like I was trying to trick him. He says, no, you don't. He said, you're dumb shit just like me who sat in the back of English class and got C's and D's. He says, there's no way you write the, he, I mean, he has been thinking all these years that some, I had someone in like, some, someone chained in the basement, generating, <laughs> generating these words that I magically went and marketed and turned into, into <laughs> but I can tell you that, that you could get that same kind of response from my Princeton classmates and, 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 and all my other high school classmates. So I'm aware there's an improbability uh, of, to, in this career. I was not identified as being this. Um, what, what do you think you got from each of your parents, uh, Diana Monroe and Tom? Your dad was a corporate lawyer and your mom was a community activist, I believe. My mom is still a community activist. Okay. Um, and my dad is retired, but, um, but still in great form. Um, from my, my dad can really write. And in, when I look back on who gave me my first real writing lessons, it was my dad taking my school papers and editing them for, for concision, for, for brevity, for pithiness. He can really reduce uh, a sentence to its essence. He just has the gift. And um, so that combined with a wide curiosity about the world. Um, so he, he, my dad is a, he just, he's interested in lots of different stuff and is capable of making lots of different stuff interesting to other people. He's a great storyteller. Um, so that, that from my dad, my mom has got just unbelievable grit. And um, she's, she's really kind of nervy and brave and, um, and unbelievably competitive. My, my dad is very easygoing. Like my dad is very amused by how much time he spent on the end of every bench of every foot, every sports team he played. He's, but he just he just easygoing person. My mother has learned some of his easygoingness, but my mother my mother was an athlete and a warrior, kind of from the moment she was born. And when I was a really little kid, I mean I can remember almost everything I did was my mother turned it into a competition. Like we're gonna go mail letters, going to the end of the block to mail letters. We, and we had to race. We would race to see so we get to the, the mailbox first. So my mother had a kind of, made kind of demands that, that I, res, I resented and resisted and fought, but that was there in the air. When my father was like, it's all gonna work out, take it easy, don't worry about things. You know, <laughs> my mother was worried about things. Um, and, and, uh, and so in some way, My father enhanced my capacities, my abilities, but my mother really filled me with ambition uh, I, I, or 
taught me ambition, I think, at a very early age, uh, like up before the age of 10. Uh, by that time, I, by the time I was 10, I was a ferociously competitive person. Most, it was, and that, that competitive um, instinct found its way into sports, not into school. I didn't think of school as something you competed in. Uh, obviously it was, but I just thought this, I don't want to, I didn't want to have much to do with it. But, um, but like this kind of like go and succeed and win, uh, th that was baked into me by, partly by the genes and partly by my mother. And, and, and then I turned it on her, like after about the age of 12, when my mother, I mean, this is boring, but I can remember when I was like, oh, I don't know, coming out of really, I mean, I came out of my bad period, which goes from running from about 11 or 12 to about 15 or 16, 15, 16. And I was sitting on the, on the kitchen counter and I'd said something to my mother and she looked up from the stove and she said, do you know, that for the last seven years, you have made my life a sheer hell. And I remember feeling not guilt, not remorse, but celebration. Yes, I've won. <laughs> so my mother gave me this thing to put, she gave me this thing to push against um, and I pushed against it. Um, but it was, it, was, it was ugly for a while. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, one of the things you said I find fascinating, you've, you've mentioned it several times actually in interviews is, I don't look the way I'm wired, which is also so true of so many of the characters that you write about. But you were just mentioning earlier with the Undoing Project that this sponging up the neuroses of one of your characters. But I wondered in a, a Francis Bacon kind of sense where he said, there's no way for me to draw a portrait without imposing myself onto them also. Do you see it looking back at your work not just what you've taken from your subjects, but where you have imposed yourself on them. Well, that's funny. Let me think about that. My first reaction isn't, oh, yes. Maybe <laughs> may it may be true. Because um, I, I think of the characters as being oh so different from one another. Um, the, you know, this is how it might be true. Um, it probably is true. That, Drawing characters, nonfiction characters, is a matter of selection. You're selecting your material, right? And um, if I if I write about you, um, with any luck, all your your parents and your 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 spouse and your kids and they'll all recognize and say, yeah, 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 that's him. Um, and I would say that that happens to me that that I don't I don't have people who really know the people I write about saying, oh, you missed it that normally what I get is, oh my God, you completely nailed them. However, I am selecting, right? What am I selecting for? I'm selecting for the things that interest me. Um, and so I'm probably, they're probably a little wittier, a little funnier, a little, you know, th than they are if you're just with them all the time. I mean, so Michael Kinsley, who was one of my mentors who edited the New Republic, um, when, I, when, Ta when Tabitha and I got married, he was seated at the table with Maury Taylor. Maury Taylor is a character who ran for president in 1996. No one's ever heard of him, but I made him the main character of my New Republic campaign, presidential campaign coverage, because he was more interesting than Bob Dole, Bill Clinton, or any others. Huh. And, um, he really was just a delight, fun to write about and be with. And I thought I could get at things about American political life through him that I couldn't get through Bill Clinton or Bob Dole. So quixotically, Maury Taylor becomes the main character in the New Republic's 1996 presidential campaign coverage. And everybody's in love with Maury Taylor as I write him. After dinner with Maury Taylor, Michael Kinsley wanders over to me and he says, he's got this look on his face like he's just weary. He says, an evening with Maury Taylor has given me great hope for your career as a novelist. He said, he said I thought, I read about this guy and I thought he was gonna be a little different than he was at dinner. But what he was doing at dinner was actually the same stuff that I was writing about. It just felt different to Michael in the flesh than on the page. Like on, at dinner, what he was doing in particular was getting people to make take bets. He was making a book on how long my marriage was going to last. Oh, at, at, <laughs> he, was doing, he was doing it. He was doing it like comically, and uh, and Michael was put off about this. On the page, it would be very funny, uh, but but in person, it, you know, it just feels different. Um, so I have had people say, um, not the people who know them, 
people that's that's what it is it's people who collide with my characters after they've read about them but had never met them before and their first impression of the characters is very different from the characters on the page so there may be and that's because i'm not writing this first impression i'm writing i get to know them really well and i'm writing them from the inside and having said that i because i sort of do think i'm really trying to draw them it would just be boring to draw, draw the same character over and over and be versions of me um having said that there's no question that you're selecting for what interests you and what interests you is going to be some expression of you um there's a movie that i when i saw it i related to it and i can't get it out of my head um called big fish mm, did you ever see big fish absolutely I love that movie and, and, but it's an odd movie right sure. um and it's that guy and i i very much identify with is it the is it i can't remember which finney is it albert finney who plays who albert finney Albert Finney. Um, with the Albert Finney character, he's a salesman who wanders the world. He lives in a small town in the South, and he and the story, story is told by through the through his eyes of his son at his funeral, at the his father's funeral, and 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 the son and the daughter are talking about how dad made up all these characters he met as he traveled the world. He come back and have these wonderful stories of these exotic people he'd had interactions with, a man who's nine feet tall. Siamese, these Siamese twins. So it was like one after another, these people, and they realized when they were kids, they believed it. But when they got older, they realized dad was just telling tall tales. And then at the funeral, all these people actually show up. And I do feel that my, has been my life, that I've wandered the world and I keep finding these great, actually great characters that, that people are resistant to believe when I write them. They think, ah, oh, they, they can't be this way. Uh, that person doesn't exist, but they do exist and you will see them at my funeral. Because um, I've, I've maintained relations with, with all of them. We, there's a certain closeness has, has been created by the act of me depicting them. And they actually are as exotic as I, as I see them. I don't have to, if I had to exaggerate them in order to make them work, they wouldn't work. Um, that that if, if any exaggeration is happening, it's happening honestly. It's like, it's actually how I see them. It's not, oh, I'm gonna make them this way. Um, they really are like that. And there's and they, as I say, they're so different from one another that that I don't think they're me. I don't think they're exactly me. They may be slightly from the point of view of another person, distorted by who I am in some systematic way, but I'm not exactly sure how. Um, not totally sure how. Um, and what gets me out of bed when I'm writing a, a, a story, partly. And the sense of obligation I have to material is partly that, oh my God, this character is so good. And it's not my imagination creating this character. I've been watching this character and I am just in awe and I can't wait to put that person on the page. Um, so, so uh, anyway, I, I think, so I, I, I kind of answered your question. I kind of didn't. No, you did. I guess I bring it up because I, I had Gay Talese on the podcast a while ago, six months or so, and I've sat with him a few times. He strikes me as somebody where self-awareness would be a tremendous hindrance to what he does. <laughs> he is a profoundly unself-aware person. I mean, <laughs> profoundly. I mean, I mean, we can yeah. another time talk about some of the things he mentioned that I, I don't know I would yeah. want aired, but um, <laughs> uh, but you have talked about several times um, that at seventeen you began to feel stereotyped in life as an untroubled. These are your words: untroubled, shallow, preppy. Um, I, I, it always makes me yeah. laugh when I think about this, but there should be a no diving sign around me because of my shallowness. Now, this is a preposterous mischaracterization. Clearly, anybody <laughs> reads your work, I don't, nobody would come away thinking this. Um, but I wonder how you arrived at this sense of who you are when you've also said that you do not like, like when Gladwell was trying to do this psychoanalysis or character study, you said, I really don't like, I don't wanna be understood. I don't wanna be in a box. I don't wanna be cornered. I feel claustrophobic. So to have that aversion 
while also presenting the other that says I'm untroubled and there's nothing. There is a dichotomy there that I'm- There is, a, uh, let me see if I can explain it away. I probably can't, but I'll give it a whirl. Um, it, and I explain it away this way. It is actually true that from the moment I kind of hit Princeton, for sure, uh, that I was just sort of tagged as shallow preppy. Like everything seemed great for me. Everything, I was always kind of happy. Things were easy. They were all out worried about one thing or other. Um, and my reaction to that was, if that's, if people, I mean, this is not true of people who you're particularly really close to. I'm just talking about kind of like the general impression the world has. Sure. Um, the stereotype review. At my, at my graduation, there were joke awards given out to Princeton, the Princeton cl senior class. I got both the Ken doll and the Barbie doll award. <laughs> okay. so, all right, so that gives you an idea. Okay, impressive. Uh, and I'm not proud of it. It's just like, that was just how when pe people surface opinion of me. Um, and I recognize that the world really does want to have a quick and dirty understanding of you. And much better that than many other quick and dirty understandings. So allow the world to have that quick and dirty understanding and don't worry about it too much. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then you can go be who you actually are uh, in your own way. Having said that, there are things that are really true about that quick and dirty understanding. Um, it really is true that I default to laziness. I default to superficiality. I default to all kinds of stuff in my life as I move through the day. That in a way the work um, uh, has to overcome when I sit down to do the work. Um, and I think it's, an, it's a huge advantage and puts a lot of my subjects at ease that I'm not this brooding complicated character. Um, that they that I don't walk into their life as a as what they think of as a writer that I walk into their life as kind of this fun dude uh, who doesn't seem to worry about too much and is pretty much at ease with whatever's going on and um, it, I think it it puts a lot of people to, to it, it let, lets people lower their guard it's, it's a useful it's a useful conceit now um, and uh, the truth is that the also other truth is that until very recently, um, I'd never really suffered uh, in a really deep way. My daughter was killed in a car accident six months ago, and um, it has been an absolutely brutal experience, absolutely at odds with my entire life narrative. Um, I don't know what to do with it. And if I had had that kind of experience earlier on in my life, I wouldn't have waltzed through life the way I've waltzed through life. I'm sure I would have been biffed, biffed off that story. It's a little late to biff me off my story, but it's, it's, it's um, I'm sh I, that I was allowed by life to at least tell myself often, but also seem to the world as if I just moved through it very easily without any trouble and, and had encountered very little resistance or hardship. And I think that's, I think it's broadly true that the amount of hardship and misery and unhappiness and suffering that I'd been dealt that um, had been, had been small in relation to compared to most people. Um, now I don't think it's true. Now I think I've been dealt a hand that's, that's, that's harder than most people are dealt uh, right now. But, and now I know what that feels like, but I, I part, so part of the, the whole, I'm a happy, shallow, preppy conceit. Uh, par partly it's true. Partly it's like, it's the that that I I didn't earn the right to be complicated. Uh, that I had too much going my way. I was. It's like you're not a really good poker player if you're winning all the time with a straight with a straight flush. You know, the car, I got dealt a lot of straight flushes, and um, so so I don't want to pretend I that I wasn't. Um, and that I'm something that I'm not. Uh, now I've been dealt twos and I've been dealt a, a, a very bad hand most recently and I'm learning how to play that. But it's a di really different experience uh, and creates a, 
uh, a challenge to even to my identity. I was terribly sorry to hear about your daughter. It was a week after I reached out to you to come on and I didn't know how to follow up because I don't know how to follow up after that. So I'm terribly sorry. No, I appreciate the statement. I, you know, I, I, it's, I don't know what to say. So why should you know what to say? Well, and I mean, one of the things I was not sure how to approach was in a 1997 profile on you, you were asked, what is the worst thing that ever happened to you? And you said, not getting elected president of the Ivy Club. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> so that was a joke. So that was, I was trying to, I was trying to explain just how untroubled my life had been. Yeah. And I didn't actually care all that much whether I was elected president of the Ivy Club. And so that was, it was kind of a joke. But the writer didn't understand it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, I just was thinking, I mean, my mother lost a child from crib death. My father's brother was killed at 16 in front of his dad logging. So it's kind of stained the family identity at two levels for me. But when so much of what you've talked about with your identity publicly is I'm untroubled and things are going so great. And then only recently have you opened up to say you thought you might never write again after the loss of your daughter. And now it's transformed into something else that is kind of galvanized. It seems like a new chapter, a new um, artistic drive that, that's not, never been present before. So I guess that, that's my last question for you is, is what, what has happened? What positive can you make of such a horrendous loss? Uh, that's the question. And it's, um, so the answer is, I still don't know. I still don't know where this is going. I just find myself having a gathering energy around the conviction that the only way forward is to fill this hole by with, stuff, with, with stuff you create. And that, um, and that I'm still me. Um, I still want to sit down and put words on the page. It's still going to give me pleasure. But now this is, it's, it's, I, I do feel like I'm moving forward with like a sense of, I want, to, I want to be able to look back and say, yeah, I would have written books and screenplays and all the rest. Yeah, I'd have done that anyway. But, but, but after Dixie's death, it went to a whole nother level. And I'm going to honor her by taking it to that level. Um, that I, that the only way I can make any kind of sense of this—it's just this senseless tragedy—is by making sure that what this tragedy causes is beautiful. That what it—that I can't control what happened, but I can have some control over what it causes, and including what I create uh, as a result of what it causes and what I do in her honor. And so I have a kind of energy, and it's a, it's a, it rhymes with the energy I get from um, the feeling of obligation I have to the material, uh, that I have to do this, because if I don't do this, no one else will. It's a feeling like that. I feel like I have to do this because this hole needs to, that I need to take this energy and direct it into the filling of this hole that's been blown in our lives. And I want, that I want, all to be, and I, I mean, I'm not gonna be writing about her necessarily, but it's more, I want to honor her memory uh, by how I move through the world. And, and, the, and me at my best moving through the world is me writing things that are good. Um, so that, I see that emerging, but it's hard, man. I can't, I can't pretend, sit here and say, oh, like I'm full of joy about my life every day. It's just much more complicated than that now. I feel, knock sideways by this and i feel like it's going to be the if i if i do what i if i if if i do what i say i want to do it will be the bravest thing i've ever done it's going to take a lot of courage to get where i want to get but she was brave she inspired me with her courage and um and i sort of like this is the goal the goal is to have people say wow what he did after his child died it's different, it's better, and it's, it's a, she must have meant a lot. Uh, that, that I, want, I, want that, I want that out there, because she did mean a lot.
Um, anyway, I bet it, speaking of children, I've got a child. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, he was, what happened was he was he's supposed to walk back to this place, but it, it, we're having this storm of the century out here. So he can't walk, he can't walk. It's like, it's pouring. So I gotta go grab him. Um, so, all right, is good. Nice seeing your face. We'll do this over a, a beer one day, I hope. Please let me know when you come through the city. This was such come, a treat, thank you. If you come through Berkeley, let me know. I'll take you to my, my watering hole. Would love to, would love to. Thanks so much, Michael, this was fun. And uh, please let me know about the Cuba stuff because that has been a huge decade for me. Uh, well, it's good to know your interest uh, because I, 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 I may need sounding boys. So that would be great. Yeah, uh, in any case, I followed up with both of your guys, Joe Kahoski and Kit Krieger, <laughs> right after. So that was my entry point to journalism was kind of through your path in a weird way. That's funny. That's yeah. funny. Still talking. All right. Really. All right See you later. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. 